good to be back here with you guys. Um, and coming out of vacation, I get to come back and talk to you guys about suffering. So it's like quite, quite the shift there. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting as I've been kind of preparing um, this message this week um, and really, sorry, there's a fly up here. I'm really kind of feeling the weight of this topic, right? This, this passage um, that we're getting into and, and throughout our series as, as we've been talking through Isaiah and talking about these passages of the suffering servant, um, it really kind of seeks to respond to these questions, these kind of big existential questions that we have of why is there suffering and how do we respond to suffering? Those are some big questions to ask. And so as, as we um, are approaching this, this scripture today, like I feel the weight of that. Um, and, and I think about um, just all the, all the suffering that we see in our world. Um, you know, there's just, there's, there's so much of it. Um, one, one conversation that my husband Matt and I have been having a lot is as we look around and see um, the, the environmental impacts in our world, the, the climate change that's happening, the global warming. Um, as we were just on vacation, we were in Colorado and we're up in the mountains, these, the beautiful mountains of Colorado and, and even there like feeling the impacts of it, feeling like the, the intense heat even at like 10,000 10, miles of elevation. Um, and, and at the same time as we were there, I was, I was reading news reports of um, different places around the world experiencing this extreme heat too. Um, like in, I believe in London, there was like part of the, um, the runway at the airport was melting because it was so hot. And they were like covering this bridge in foil to try to reflect the heat so that it didn't melt. Um, I, I was reading about in, in Mexico, in areas where they're running out of water, where their taps are starting to run dry. Um, and, and as Matt and I kind of talk about these things that, that we're seeing, we often have this conversation of like, what is the world that we're leaving behind for the future generations, for our kids and our grandkids and their, their generations? Because the reality is that we're living in the midst of the impacts, the consequences of the generations that have come before us. And our, our actions now and our lives that we live now are going to impact the generations to come. And so, so we sit with this. What, what do we do with this? Um, and, and I wonder for you guys, kind of what are the areas of suffering um, that might be weighing on you? That whether it's something that, that you yourself are experiencing or as you look around at our world, what are those areas of suffering that's weighing on you? And I want you to kind of hold that and keep that in mind as we go throughout our message today. And so, as we said, we are continuing um, going through Isaiah, looking at these, these passages that talk about the suffering servant. And as we've talked throughout our series, um, when we think of the suffering servant, uh, there's, there's kind of some different identities that we can give to this servant. Obviously for us, um, you know, being Jesus followers, living in the time after Jesus' life and death, we read these passages and we automatically think of Jesus, right? They seem to be describing Jesus. But we can also look at the suffering servant as, um, as describing Israel. For, for the people, as this was written to the Hebrew people, as they're sitting there listening to the words of the prophet 500 years before Jesus, they weren't, they weren't thinking about Jesus. They weren't thinking about someone that was going to come in 500 years. Um, they, they were understanding it as, 
as them being called to be God's servant. And so this is the, both a beautiful and kind of tricky thing about prophecy and scripture in general, is that there's not always just one meaning. There's these multiple meanings. There, there is a meaning for, for the original audience. It is written in a, to particular people in a particular context, and there's some meaning there. But there's also this meaning that, um, that applies to everybody throughout history. And so we have to kind of sort through that. But as we go through our passage today, I want to challenge us to think about that suffering servant in the way that the original audience would have. Um, so for the people of, of Israel, um, you know, hearing these prophecies, they're going to think back to some of the previous chapters in Isaiah where it talked about this servant. And things like in Isaiah 41.8 where it said, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Where it's laid out, this servant is Israel. In Isaiah 43.10, where, where God was addressing Israel and saying, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. In Isaiah 44.1, where he said, but now listen, Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I, have, whom I have chosen. So that's the context that we're going to come in with today, um, recognizing that God has called Israel as his servant, as his witnesses to the world. And so when this prophecy, he's talking about my servant, that's, that's the lens that I want you to look at it today. Um, and, you know, as I, was, as I was doing some study on, on this passage and I was listening to a podcast called the Bema Podcast, um, which kind of goes through the Bible and looks at it from a Jewish perspective, they were talking about how often we say that, um, that all of the Old Testament kind of points to Jesus. And I, I use that same language. And, and there's, there's truth in that, but they were saying for, like a, for a Jewish audience to hear that, um, that's almost going to sound a little bit offensive in that it sounds like all the story of Israel, everything that came before Jesus, that it didn't really matter until Jesus, that it was just setting the stage. But there was work that God was doing even before Jesus came. The work that we see God doing through Jesus, he was already doing in the world before Jesus came too. And so maybe a better way of thinking about it is to think that Jesus' life points back the Old Testament, because Jesus is the fulfillment of God. He's the fulfillment of God's message and the work that God has been doing in the world throughout all time. So with that in mind, let's jump into our scripture. We're going to be reading in Isaiah as 52, starting in chapter 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. So as we start to kind of break down this passage a little bit, um, I want to start by, by looking at some of the pronouns that were used um, throughout this passage and kind of just to clarify who those pronouns refer to. So I'm going to need a little bit of audience participation in this. Um, so starting now in, in the first verse there in verse 13, um, we see this pronoun my. See, my servant will act wisely. Who is that my referring to? God, right? It's, it's like the, God is speaking through um, the prophet, my servant. Um, in the next line of verse 13 and then following throughout, we see he. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Who is that he? A little louder. <laughs> Could be Jesus, but we're also trying to... Israel, right? That he is the servant, this role of servant. We're trying to understand that in the role of Israel has been called to the servant. Okay. Um, what about in verse 15? Um, we start to see they, and, and it says, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who's that they? The nations? Right, so, and kind of presumably the nations other than Israel, right? Okay, going down a little farther, once we get into chapter 53, verse 1, um, we start to see we and our. Like in 53, it says, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's that our? What was that? It would be the Trinity. If we keep on going farther down, we look at he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Who is that we? Us. Israel. Okay. So here's where it's a little bit confusing. Because if you remember, we said that the he was the servant who's Israel. And now we're also saying that this we is referring to Israel. There's kind of like these dual pronouns going on there. And you also might notice there's a little bit of a shift in the voice, where in the beginning, in that first verse, where it was, see, my servant will act wisely. It's like this prophet is kind of speaking from the voice of God. And then all of a sudden, at, at chapter 53, the voice shifts, where it starts to talk about God in the third person. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So that might feel a bit confusing, and if that feels confusing, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's good. We're going to work through this a little bit more. But I think that um, kind of even part of, this is a little bit of a tangent, but important, part of what we even see here in, in like the confusingness, the fluidity of the pronouns, the voice changing, um, is that scripture is not simple, <laughs> right? Sometimes you hear people say, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's not that clear, <laughs> right? When we are coming to, to scripture, um, we have to wrestle through it. We have to sit in the confusion. We don't just pass over the things that feel a bit confusing. We have to kind of sit with it and wrestle through it uh, to kind of draw out the meaning. So let's talk about this a little bit more. This idea of he and we both referring to Israel. 
that gets a bit confusing, especially when you look at like verse five here. If we were to put Israel in place of like the he and the we pronouns there, it would sound like this. But Israel was pierced for Israel's transgressions. Israel was crushed for Israel's iniquities. The punishment that brought Israel peace was on Israel. And by Israel's wounds, Israel is healed. Right? That sounds, that sounds a, bit, a bit confusing. Um, one, one possible kind of interpretation to understand that he, we, a little bit more. Um, again, when I was listening to the Bama podcast, they were talking about this. And they were talking about how um, the, the book of Isaiah is kind of broken into two parts. There's chapters 1 through 39, which are addressing this time before the exile to Babylon. So this would have been in about the 720s BC. And then we have chapters 40 through 66, which are addressing the time after exile. So with this, there's, there's a couple possibilities. There's, there's a difference of about 200 years there. So either Isaiah has written this, this whole thing, he's writing in the 720 BCs, but then he's also looking and predicting kind of 200 years ahead and kind of speaking to Israel of what's to come after the exile. The other possibility here that some scholars believe is that Isaiah wrote this first part, and then later on in that time after the exile that, that some of Isaiah's disciples kind of took Isaiah's message and expanded it to speak to Israel in that current context. Either one of those are possibilities, and with either one of them, the message might be the same, but, but if we kind of take that, that second idea, it might make a little bit more sense that this is written in a time when the people of Israel are kind of looking back. They're, they're trying to understand why the exile happened, trying to understand why their ancestors experienced this suffering. And in that, that this, this message from the prophets is speaking to them and trying to kind of bring some clarity to that. Why, why did the exile happen? And how do, we, how do we move forward from that? So with that in mind, this kind of, when it's talking about he and the role of the servant, it could kind of be referring to like Israel in the past, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the exile. And the we is kind of more the, the contemporary Israel um, in these later generations. That still might feel a little bit confusing. Hopefully it'll clear up in, in, in a little bit. Okay, so there's that one aspect. There's also, as we look at, um, there's kind of a shift here from talking about they, talking about the nations, um, talking about how they were appalled at this servant, how they didn't understand, they didn't believe the message. There's a little bit of this, this judgment on the nations. But in that, there's also this message of hope, where it says that they will eventually come to see, they will come to understand. Um, and where, where the, the prophet is making it clear that while it might be is easy for Israel to sit and judge the nations for getting it wrong, that, that God's plan has always been to draw the nations into. When God gave Israel this role of servant, it was that they would be blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations, that they would show the nations who God was. There's this phrase here where it says that this servant will sprinkle many nations. That idea of sprinkling comes from this, um, this priestly tradition of sprinkling blood on, on priests, on the altar, on, on the priest's clothing as a way of purifying and consecrating them. So there's this promise that, that these nations who, who have not known God, who have not understood God, that they're going to be drawn in 
as well. So there's this message of both judgment and hope for the nations. But then we start to see a shift where it's talking about they, and then it starts to talk about we. It starts to talk about us. Um, again, when there's that, that shift in, in the voice at chapter 53 is where it starts to talk about we. And so here we see in, in verse 1 of 53 where it says, who has believed our message? We start to see that even Israel itself has not always believed their own message that God has given them. It goes on to say that, that this servant was despised and rejected by all mankind. It says that this servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So in this, the prophet is kind of drawing Israel into this as well. As they are trying to make sense of the suffering that has happened for their people, saying it's not just that God was punishing you. It's not just that these other nations were punishing you, but there's this shared responsibility here. And so we come to see that there's also this message of both judgment and hope for Israel itself. So I want us to look back at at a few of the verses um, at the end of the passage, verses 4 through 6. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, So as I said, as as the people of Israel, as they're, they're trying to make sense here, it would be easy for them to, to kind of try to shift the blame for the suffering, suffering to other people. But the prophet's trying to show them the way that, that we have all contributed to this suffering. And I don't think it's a way of like victim blaming or, or trying to like draw this direct line from you did this and so this is what, uh, this is the suffering that you're experiencing. But I think that it's kind of more, it draws us into this collectivist we. <laughs> You know, so often for us in our Western, very individualized society, we think about things like sin and salvation in very individualistic terms, right? I mean, if you, if you think about even when we talk about injustice, when we talk about things like racism, it's very common that um, there are specifically a lot of white people that'll be like, but I never own slaves. I don't use racial slurs. And kind of seen it as the responsibility doesn't fall on me because I didn't do these individual acts. But I think what, what we see in Hebrew culture and what we see a lot in the language of the Bible, it's not always so focused on the individual, but it's focused on the, the collective of humankind, right? That we all, we all contribute to the brokenness and the injustice in the world. Um, whether that's in ways that we're aware of or not, that we all have a responsibility in the injustice and suffering that takes place in our world. So I think here it kind of speaks to some of these like bigger existential questions of why, why is there suffering and how do we respond to it? And I think some really common human responses to suffering, there's a few different ones. One is that we blame the victim. 
We blame the person who is suffering, that they must have done something to bring this on themselves. Sometimes we blame God. We see suffering as a punishment that God is, is putting on somebody, um, that, that maybe God is bringing this on me because he wants to teach me something. And the third response is sometimes that we blame others, <laughs> that we look, that we create enemies, and we look at them over there, and we put all the responsibility on them. But I think that the reality is, as much as we want these, these kind of easy answers and we want somebody to blame, oftentimes there's not, there's not a direct or straight line from this sin to this suffering. Instead, what we see here, we see God's response to suffering is that it's not just to blame one of those, those three people or groups, but the reality that the result of humanity turning away from God and choosing their own way is what creates suffering in our world. We all contribute to it and we all experience it. But there's good news in that as well, that though God did not cause the suffering, he works in the midst of the suffering to draw us to himself, right? He always desires healing and restoration for us. And so even as we see here um, that, that God had called Israel to be his servant, that Israel even itself had, had turned away from God in some ways, the nations of the world had turned away from God, and that led to this suffering God continues to call Israel, continues to call humanity to partner with him in the work of healing and restoration. And so this was the message that God had for Israel, right? That they, he had called them to be his servant. They had failed. The nations had failed. They had rejected this servant, but there's still hope because God wants us to join him. God wants us to continue to be that serpent, to turn back to him and participate with him in that work of healing. And so as, as this maybe later generation of Israel, as they're looking back at the suffering of their previous generations, they also see that, um, that in the midst of that suffering, as Israel returned to God and partnered with him, that now they are sitting in in the healing and the peace that came out of that suffering. And this idea of, of kind of partnering with God in the midst of the suffering to bring healing and peace for future generations, when I think about that in our context, there's a couple things that come to mind. Um, first is, is immigrant stories. In so many immigrant stories that I have heard, there, um, there is this reality that oftentimes parents who have chosen to, to leave their home, their culture, their family, to move somewhere else, they do it knowing that it's not just going to be easy for them. They do it knowing that it's going to be hard, that there's going to be suffering, but they do it with the hope of a better future for their generations to come, for their kids and their grandkids. They take on that suffering with the mindset that as they endure this, that there is going to be peace and healing for the future generations. I also think about civil rights 
leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and, and Fannie Lou Hamer and, and John Lewis, people who, who did not shy away from the suffering of their people, but, but entered in and ended up enduring more suffering because they knew that, that it was their call to partner with God in the work of restoration to bring about a world that was going to be more just and more good for the generations to come. And that's the story for each one of us. Obviously, we, we sit in the reality of, of the people who have come before us, who have taken on suffering in order to bring justice and peace and goodness, but there's still more to be done, right? We take on this we are called to take on this role as well because there is still suffering and there's still injustice and we are called to partner with God in bringing healing and peace for future generations. And so, of course, when we, when we read this passage, of course, for us now, we're going to see Jesus in this because Jesus then showed us this, this was the work that, that God was calling his people to all throughout time, but then Jesus comes and he shows us how this is lived out perfectly. He comes as this perfect servant of God, coming to show who God is, to take up the pain and the suffering of the world in order to bring peace and healing and restoration. But the danger is, if we only read this and only see it as Jesus, there's a temptation to then think that this is just saying that Jesus came and suffered so that we don't have to. And while there is a reality that Jesus' suffering did bring healing for us, um, he also showed us how to suffer well. He called us to follow in his example, to join in so that others might find healing as well. And so this passage is not just about something that Jesus did, but it's about something that we are invited into as well. And I came across... As I was doing my study, I came across 1 Peter um, 2, 21 to 25, and, and I feel like um, this passage kind of sums up the message and application for us really well. And it actually uses, it alludes to some of the same language that was used here in this Isaiah passage. So 1 Peter 2, starting chapter, in verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Last week, um, Elliot had talked about how the gospel is, is an invitation to a new way of life that embodies the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit. The gospel is not just about what Jesus did for us, not just about his death on the cross, but the gospel is also about the life that Jesus lived. This life that fulfilled the mission that God had given to humans throughout all time since the beginning to partner with him, to be his representative to the world. And that's the same message that we're invited into today. So Christ gave us this example of how to live, including how to suffer well. And he reminded us that our suffering is not in vain. 
And while we are called to die to sin, to die to the ways that, that we choose to go our own way, the ways that we choose to do what's best for our benefit at the expense of others, we are also called to live. We're called to live for righteousness. This idea of righteousness is about right relationship to God, to ourselves, to others. And this word righteousness is also translated in other places as justice. And we are called to live for justice. A few weeks ago, as we were talking about this idea of justice um, and, and what justice is, we kind of talked about how there's, there's this mix of, of the spiritual and the physical, right? There's danger in only seeing justice as a spiritual matter because we end up telling people who are suffering to just accept it and endure it because one day you'll be in heaven and it'll all be okay. That's where you'll have justice. But God's message to the people of Israel as they were in exile, as they were sitting in the aftermath of the exile, was not just to keep enduring, keep enduring because one day you'll get to heaven and it'll be okay. But it was a message of hope for the here and now, for the world today, that God wanted to bring restoration and healing and justice in their situation on earth. And so that is what we are called to as well. We're called to participate in this work of justice and restoration that God is doing. In that, we do, we do hold the tension of the recognition that, that we are going to work for justice, but we're not going to see the complete fulfillment of it here and now, right? We might get to see pieces of that here and now. It might be that the future generations get to experience some of that. And then ultimately, there will be one day um, where there is complete justice restored. But that doesn't mean that we just sit and wait for that. We have this responsibility in the here and now um, to join in the work that God is doing. And it's easy to see, to look around. You know, earlier we, I was talking about the, the environmental impacts, the climate change that's happening. There's suffering in that. We see racial injustice. We see gun violence. We see refugee crisis. And in all of this, it should bring up an urgency in us that there is work that needs to be done. There is a responsibility that we have to join in the work. We hold that intention with the reality that lasting transformation takes time, that it's a slow process. In, this, in the peacemaking cohort um, that I was a part of that just finished up, um, we got to hear from a peacemaker named Ben McBride, um, who's, who's in the, the Bay Area. He does a lot of work in systemic injustice. And he talks about the importance um, in justice work to have a 100-year vision. We have to think long-term because it does take time. There is work. We show up every day, and we do the work and hope that we see changes here and now. But there is a reality that what we are working towards, it might not come for 100 years. It might not come for three to five generations. But we still, we still show up, and we do the work we partner with the work that God is doing. Um, there's a 19th century German philosopher, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. He uh, coined this term, a long obedience, in the same direction. And, and as I was, was thinking about this, even thinking about the idea of the 100-year vision, um, that, that term came to mind. There's a quote from, from Nietzsche. 
that says the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. Friends, we are called to this long obedience in the same direction, the direction that Jesus modeled, the direction that God has been calling humanity to all along, to partner with God in establishing his kingdom on earth, a kingdom in which we all belong to one another, and we all work for the flourishing and well-being of everyone. As we finish up today, um, I, I wrote out a prayer, and as, as we're thinking, talking about um, the, the collective nature of, of Scripture and, and of this work, um, I wanted us to read this prayer together. So the words should be coming up on the screen. Um, if you guys could read this with me. Lord, in our suffering, remind us that you are near. Remind us that you see us and hear our cries. Remind us that you will rescue us. Lord, in the injustices that we see, give us the humility to recognize the part that we play. Give us the courage to repent. Give us the wisdom to live differently. Lord, in the work of restoration, help us to join you. Help us to be your servant. Help us to do your will on earth as it is in heaven.